welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you return back for future episodes and new content. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope. And so before we get into the main event for today, just a few announcements, as we always do. If you're on YouTube, uh, please make sure that you hit that red subscribe button so you can get notifications for future episodes. And if you are listening from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever audio platform where you listen to your podcast, make sure you subscribe there as well. You could also catch our episodes, the video version of the episodes, on our main website, identitytalkforeducators.com. And for those who want to contribute to the growth of the platform by giving out a donation, small one, uh, we have two places where we accept those. So if you're on Cash App, our handle is money sign ID Talk for Ed. And if you're on Venmo, our handle is at Kwame SM. That's K W A M E S M. Thank you kindly. All right, y'all. So I'm so excited for this episode. I know it's been a few weeks since uh, we've released an episode for the podcast. I had to go on a brief hiatus just to retool a few things here and there, but we're back, and this episode is one that I think you're all going to enjoy. So our focus for tonight is on brain-based science in the math classroom. So for those who don't know, or you may know already, in order to help our math learners succeed and thrive in the classroom, we have to know how their brains work. We have to know how they function in order for us to adjust our instruction, adjust our pedagogy to get the most out of them. You know, we can't do the one shoe size fits all approach in math. We know that it doesn't work. So uh, today I'm bringing on someone who I would say is an expert when it comes to brain-based science and has done a lot of research on this very issue as it pertains to the math classroom. So I'm so excited to bring her on. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation. And uh, without further ado, we're going to bring on Miss Lisa McConchie to the podcast to talk with us about brain-based science in the math classroom and how it all works and benefit all parties involved. So let's bring her on. 
Lisa, hello. Hey, Kwame. Thanks for having me. And hi, everybody. How are we doing? I'm doing great. It's a great day here in San Diego, California. Life is good. I'm healthy. And I'm so excited to talk about math and the brain. So fun. Awesome. And we're glad to have you on. Um, for those who do not know, I actually met Liesl, well, E met Liesl recently on Twitter uh, because we we're having some spirited math conversations. And I was just really intrigued by her perspective on a variety of different issues, which we're going to be touching on in more depth during this hour. But like I said, it's great to have you. And to just to get things started, I always like to have people share their mathography. So one thing that we focus on this podcast is we, we like to take a walk down the memory lane on people's math journeys. Mm -hmm. We all got to math through a different path and we all share a common love for it. But as far as the path that we take to get there is different for everybody. And we're just interested in hearing your story of how you came across math the first time you encountered it and how you've been able to sustain this love for math over this extended period of time up until now. So however you want to take this question um, is totally up to you. Yeah, I love it. My mathography, such a great term. So I, my earliest memories of math um, started in my bedroom when I was a young girl. My mom had painted a chalkboard onto one of the walls in my bedroom. And my earliest memories are teaching all of my siblings math. It was like the one school classroom kind of situation. I come from a big family. I sat them all down and I was teaching them math. It was just like before I even started um, formal schooling. And so that's where like my love of teaching and working with math um, began. And then I feel like I've lived kind of like two different math lives. My, my first math life was um, rooted in um, the oppressive natures of speed and rightness and memorization. And that got me through my K-12 schooling and it gave me a lot of success. Um, what we would call in my field of cognitive neuroscience, we call like a lot of dopamine. I got these like big hits and bursts of dopamine for being rewarded for being right and being fast and for having all these things memorized. And um, it felt really good. And it carried me through uh, to when I got to my undergrad. And when I'm doing my math ed degree in undergrad is the first time that I didn't pass a math class. And that was because it was a class that I couldn't memorize my way through. I don't remember what the class was called, but it was something about like these long form proofs, like paragraph forms, like each question took like two pages to write out the explanation of something. And for the first time, my strategies, my way of being good at math didn't work. And it was my first experience with any kind of like math trauma or math anxiety. And I had to retake the class and figure out different ways. I soon jumped into the classroom as a middle school and high school math teacher. And I realized that's when I first had this, this awakening to a whole other way of doing math. And that's when I was like, okay, hold on. I'm not the only one who can't memorize their way through math. And I need to, like, I, there's this whole other way. 
And so here I am as a young adult for the first time realizing that there's this whole other way of doing math to, to think about it conceptually and to just like dig in with the messiness and find the joy and the beauty and the connectedness between math concepts. And oh my gosh, it was, it was so fun. I was like at an adult and like rediscovering all these new concepts almost like for the first time over again with my students when I was a brand new teacher. Haven't helped those students. They, they, they made it through those first years of teaching with me and we learned together and it was just so exciting. So that's where my mathography um, brings us to now. Wow. And as you're sharing your story, I'm hearing so many similarities between your story and mine, because mm -hmm. when I was going through my K-12 schooling, a lot of my math education was focused around procedural fluency. You know, that step-by-step -step process. Um, here, take this algorithm, take this formula, plug numbers okay. in exactly. where the variables are solve it step by step, crank, spit crank, out crank. the answer. Mm -hmm. That was what K to 12 was for me. And I got really good with that. And of course, at that time, you thought, well, if I can just solve these equations, if I can evaluate these expressions, if I can do all these different things and follow the steps, I will always get that right answer. So during that time, even though I was strong with my procedural fluency, my conceptual fluency was lacking. But I didn't get exposed until I did my undergrad um, at Temple University. So I was a math major during my five years there. And I could tell you, a lot of those classes were kicking my butt. I was an average math student throughout those five years. Um, and I took all the classes you can think of, probably a lot of the same ones you did. Mm -hmm. um, all the calculuses. I was doing linear algebra. Uh, I was also doing a lot of a lot of theory-based math where you're solving your proven theorems and solving conjectures. So that was really my first exposure to the conceptual side of the discipline where it's not just about cracking these numbers, but really just understanding the relationships uh, between the numbers and the different concepts we were learning and how they're interrelated. So I'm wondering if that was something that was a, a shock to you when you got there. Yep. And that was the class, that same kind of class. I don't know what it was called, but it was probably that same class. I was like, what the heck? Like, this is, this is not the math that I know. This isn't the math that I right. love. This isn't the math that I'm good at. And I was like, oh, and so like my whole math identity was just shattered. And yet I had decided when I was in third grade, it was like eight years old when I first documented that I want to be a math teacher when I grew up. And I wasn't willing to step back and try to redesign my life path. I was like, no, this is what I'm going to do. So instead of just like taking these shattered pieces and just brushing them under the rug and go finding something else, I was like, I need to find a way to piece this back together in a new way that is rooted in, in really understanding what the heck this like math machine is doing uh, in my brain when I just crank out these right answers. And I, and I did, and I'm still doing it, right? Like I'm still in this exploration constantly of learning new things. And now my kids are going through school and, and now I'm learning with them, alongside them, all these, it's just fun. Sorry, math is fun. Yeah. 
No, it, it really is. Um, I like to tell my students, it's a metaphor for life because you have this problem that you have to crack and there are multiple ways to solve the same problem. Kind of like a GPS where, okay, you can go this path, you can go that path, you can go straight ahead. And I think you mentioned something about speed, how speed and math can be oppressive, right? Um, and when you mentioned that, it automatically brought me back to just the drills, the the skill and drill tactics that so many of our teachers um, imposed on us when we're trying to gain automaticity with timetables and all yeah. the things that we just know, right? Yeah. When, I, when I was in third grade, this is probably why I decided in third grade to be a math teacher, because I was in third grade, we do these daily multiplication worksheets they were timed yep. and i you know surprise surprise as this as the white female in the room i was the first one done i was the fastest in the class the teacher would let me go sit on the stool in front of his room and read off my answers to the class while everyone else checked their answers and if you didn't get a certain number of right you had to stay back from recess to to practice these more and of course, wow. as an eight-year-old, as an eight-year-old, I'm like, "Woo! Look at me! This is awesome! I get to sit in the stool and 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 share my answers, and I get to be like, it's just it was the the hierarchy was so obvious, but as an eight-year-old, I didn't see it. And but now, as an adult who can see the inequities in the math the math sphere so much more clearly, I can look back on that and be like, "Well, yeah, sure, that felt real good for the one me, but what about?" everyone else in that yes. class what about the rest of them who weren't invited to that stool because they weren't the fastest because they weren't getting everything right the first time they're learning about multiplication which is you know a new complex concept for to an eight-year-old in third grade and so that's the that's the work that i'm doing now is helping people understand how the brain processes and stores all of this math information so that we can create equitable math spaces not just one that serves the one um me but that can mm -hmm. serve everyone and that's actually a perfect segue into our next segment which is show your work mm -hmm. probably the most popular phrase we like to say as math teachers our kids come up to us with work for us to grade. We're checking to see if they're showing evidence of their math thinking. And sometimes they just may show the answer. And we're just like, hey, I need you to show your work. I need to see how you're thinking about these concepts. I need to see evidence that you truly understand what this concept is. Mm -hmm. And in this context, when we say show your work on this podcast, we're talking about receipts and you have a lot of receipts when it comes to the work you've done and the research you've done as it pertains to brain-based science and math and, and how our brains work um, in the I'm math context. Getting, I'm just getting started. Yes. <laughs> so you had mentioned something about being the first one in your class as a third grader to get through the timetables, right? Mm -hmm. So my situation was different. I actually spent my first four grades in a self-contained classroom, had an IEP. And for as long as I can remember, I've always been a slow processor. I'm still a slow processor to this day. Still takes me a minute to 
to think through different things, whether it's writing articles, whether it's even doing lesson plans. Mm -hmm. And I've just come to accept the fact that, hey, this is just how my brain functions. There's nothing wrong with me. That's just how I roll, right? Mm -hmm. You do you. Now, now here's what I want to know from you. So when you had that epiphany about how you were how you were seen as a stronger math student because you were just speeding through those timetables. Was that your first epiphany into just brain science as far as how different brains work in the math classroom? I don't think I was that aware <laughs> at that age. Of course, not at eight years old, but as you got older. <laughs> right, as I got older, yes. So, so once I started teaching, you know, because I grew up in in a, in a tracked math space, so I was surrounded in my, you know, by the time I got to, I mean, actually, by third grade, they already were putting me off into the back table and letting me do my own math problems on my own and challenging me in new ways. In middle school, I was in the advanced math classes. High school, you know, I was tracked through that 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 system. And so it wasn't until I started teaching. I started teaching at a very young age. I was 20 years old and I got my first classroom. I don't know how anyone ever let me be in front of a classroom that young. Um, and uh, I, so here I am for the first time in, in my life really seeing students um, struggle with math that I hadn't seen ever before. And that was when, you know, because I came in, I was like... I've been watching my teachers teach math since third grade when I first decided I want to be a math teacher. I've got this in the bag. I rushed through my undergrad program. I wanted to get in the classroom so badly. I wanted to teach math so, so badly that I got there and I got to my first year of teaching. I'm 20 years old. I'm teaching like 18 year olds, high school seniors. And I was just, just a hit upside the head. So hard. I was, it was a total awakening that, oh my gosh, this, not everyone has had the same math experience that I have. And there is some work to do here that I don't know anything about. I need to go back and I need to learn some things. These students aren't motivated. They have, they don't love math the way that I have, what's happened to them, what's their math story. And so that was, you know, partway through my first year of teaching, that's when I was like, I need to understand these students better. I understand math. Well, I thought I did. I understand. I need to understand my students. And for me, my focus has been, you know, understanding the, the, the organ that, that dominates so much of how we learn and how we be and who we are. And I was like, I'm going for the brain. I need to understand these brains, how they work, how they've shaped these students to be who they are and what makes them tick, what motivates them, how emotions play a role in here. And, you know, also happening simultaneously is I'm trying to teach math and I'm struggling big time. Simultaneously, you know, my first year teaching, we, we had like a school shooting that happened down the street in our sister school. My second year of teaching 9-11 happens. And so all these like mass traumas and I'm not understanding how to um, handle like the emotions of students. And so everything from, from pedagogy and lesson planning and attention systems and motivation systems to emotional traumas and how that impacts cognition, it all just, you know, life just gifted me this lesson that I, I needed to learn if I was going to survive in the classroom. And I wanted so badly to be in there and to stay that I just did the work to start learning. And you know what? 
I feel like a lot of what we do as math teachers from an instructional standpoint are very much counterproductive to neuroscience. <laughs> and, and I want to elaborate on that a little bit. Like in our teacher training, we focus so much on, on pacing and we're in this high stakes testing era where we have to speed through lessons in order to prepare kids for benchmark assessments. We have a scope and sequence Mm -hmm. that tells us how many days we should spend on a particular skill, not accounting for the neurodiversity of the students that are in front of us. Like I had, there was one class I had, a seventh grade class. I had students who were autistic. I had students who had IEPs. Mm-hmm. I had students who did not have IEPs, but should have had IEPs, yeah. and I was still providing some some scaffolds for them so they can stay afloat. Mm-hmm. There is no way that I can norm my pacing to meet all of their needs, so I had to slow it down. Yeah. Now, were they ready for those? Were they ready for those assessments? Definitely not. But I was going to go at my own pace. Now, it wasn't something that I that I figured out early on, it took time Mm -hmm. for me to get to a place where I felt comfortable making that bold move. Because, you know, when you do something like that, depending on what school you're in, there could be some repercussions for, for not following the script. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering from your perspective, being someone who's researched the brain, do you believe that pacing guides and, scope of sequence plans do more harm than good for the social emotional welfare of our learners in the math classroom? This is such an awesome question. It depends on how they're used. If Got they it. are, if they are framed as the end goal, this is my true North. This is the compass I'm following my pacing guide, my curriculum sequence, then yes. That is a complete contradiction to a student-centered approach to learning because we're centering the pacing guide. We're centering the, the curriculum sequence. One of, um, one of the scientists that I love to quote uh, in these types of conversations is um, Dr. Dr. Arthur Toga. And he's like a pioneer in the field. He's published hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies. And he has said that the idea that all fourth graders is the grade he just randomly used. The idea that all fourth graders should be on the same page on the same day is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Okay, I added the absolute nonsense. That's not part of the quote. <laughs> but the idea that they should be on the same page, the same day, he calls it nonsense. And I completely agree. I mean, when you study the brain, you realize that how unique each one of us is because of all of the life experiences, including our genetics, but we've had so many unique experiences. It's just completely ridiculous to think that we should be following some prescribed um, sequence to, to serve some benchmark of an assessment that, what is the purpose of that? Anyway, that's a whole different conversation. Um, but if we're really going to create student-centered, equitable math spaces, then instead of putting our pacing guide as our true north, we need to put our students there, particularly the ones who have historically been marginalized because the rest of them are doing just fine by following this, you know, 
pacing guide. Totally agree. Totally agree. And since we are in this high stakes testing culture, right? Mm -hmm. I always wonder, like, why is it that during the school year we preach these concepts like UDL, like, yeah, we're all about universal design for learning. You know, we're all about scaffolding our tasks so that all of our students can access the content. But then when it comes to the tests, which are normed, we don't account for how our students are processing the information. We don't account for how we format questions and, and all these different things. And it all ties back to the brain science research that, that you've been doing so much of. So I'm wondering what alternatives we can provide for assessments to really honor how different our students' brains work if there are no standardized tests in the right. picture. Okay, good. Let's throw those out. Utopian so, world. Right, utopian world. Utopian world, we step back and we ask ourselves, who are the assessments for? We need to answer that question first. And if this answer is not the students, then we've got some other conversations to have. Um, and if it's not about the teachers as well, because the assessments are for the students and for the teachers to be able to make informed decisions on how to best support the students. Um, but if it's for any other purpose beyond that, then we're going to have some other conversations. Um, so what is the, what, who are the assessments for and what is the purpose of the assessment? Is the purpose to rank and to sort and to track or is the purpose truly to serve students to serve student learning and to serve teachers to have information. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of assessments, big, big fan of formative daily assessments. That's what really matters for students and for teachers. You hear the stories all the time of, you know, these high stakes standardized tests that happen in the spring. The teachers never get the data in time to be able to use it to do anything with. So that's one way that we easily know that it's not there to serve students and serve teachers. But assessments that are, are daily informative, they serve students and they serve teachers. They serve students because it's a great way to to because the brain thrives on relevance, if we're going to talk about the brain here. So if the, if the student is getting some positive feedback, then what happens is their brain's getting flooded with dopamine, which is the neurotransmitter most associated with motivation. So if they're getting some kind of feedback, and it doesn't, folks, listen carefully, it doesn't have to count for a grade. It doesn't, and it probably shouldn't most of the time. Just some way for students to check their understanding, to get some feedback so that they know that they showed up to math class today, that it was worth it because they gave effort, they busted their butt, and it was worth it because they learned something or they did something well or they practiced something. And when they get that hit of dopamine, it gives them that self-feedback. They're like, okay, this is, this is good. I'm, I'm doing good at this. Hey, I might belong here hey, maybe I am okay at math as we try to reshape people's math identities. Like dopamine is a really powerful tool for motivation, for identity yes. um, formation, for trauma healing, and as well as just for learning, right? Because it reinforces, okay, this is the right way to do this. This, is, this got me to the correct solution, even though like your GPS, I love that metaphor. There's lots of ways to get there. 
And so that's really helpful um, to build that confidence and that self-efficacy. So every single day, students should be leaving your class with some source of dopamine that's connected to learning math. That's what I, I think, think about. And I think that's so underrated because we, we think about math anxiety. And for most of my career, I've taught middle school students, seventh, eighth graders. So we're talking about students who I'm preparing for, you know, high school algebra mm-hmm. in their freshman year. That's really why I should be preparing them for, but that's not always the case. Every year is different. Every year is an adventure. Mm-hmm. Different path we have to take. And what I've come to notice is more times than not, the greatest remedy for addressing math anxiety is just building confidence. They just need to experience success, no matter how big or small it is. They Mm -hmm. just need to see an answer be correct. They just need to be affirmed for thinking through a problem and for participating in class and contributing to the lesson. They just need... They need those small wins. Yeah. Um, I think so often in math class, we focus more on the home runs. Like, mm-hmm. did you solve this long equation? Did you write the most exemplary explanation to this word problem? You know, <laughs> did you use all the sophisticated math jargon when explaining your thinking? But sometimes we got to go underneath that and just see like what the child was able to produce. And if they've made progress from where they were before. So I love what you said about the dopamine. Yeah. I mean, and that's why simple pedagogical tools like like chunking, things that they might not be new and flashy and creating, you know, big buzz out there on Twitter, but but chunking our content down into small, simple steps, stop, check for understanding, yep. let the students get the hit of dopamine so that they can continue on. And this is why honoring different ways of getting to a math response is valuable because if we go with a single track, you have to do it this way, follow this algorithm, then look at this, look how narrow this lane is right here. If you're not tuning in visually, I got my my hands really close together. If you don't fit (laughs) into this way of doing it, then all of these students over here on the margins who have unique ways of exploring this concept are not gonna get the hit of dopamine, even though their ways are, are valid and should be honored. And they also deserve that big rush of dopamine. So. And, and you can appreciate this. I think what tends to happen a lot, and I've been guilty of this throughout my career at different points, is that in order to increase that dopamine factor in students, we tend to lessen the cognitive demand <laughs> of a task so that the students can experience the success. They can experience the success. You know, we yeah. think to ourselves, man, I don't think they're going to get it. This might be a bit too hard for them. Let me let me kind of tweak this problem so that they can access it a lo- little bit easier. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, it may not be as challenging as it should be for the child. It may not be as uh, rigorous as it should be. So I'm interested in knowing about what your thoughts are about just kind of demand of different tasks as it connects to um, neuroscience and building math confidence. 
Oh boy, how much time do we have? Okay, so you that is a great <laughs> point. That's a great point. And that happens a lot. And I'm guilty of yeah. it as well. It's like, uh, yeah. I want them to feel success. So I mean, sometimes it comes in lowering expectations. Sometimes it comes in taking the pencil from the student and, mm-hmm. and doing some of it for like there's it shows up in a lot of different ways, right? From ability grouping to a lot of things. And um and I think we can all agree that that harms students. Uh, th- what the research shows consistently is that students do better when they are challenged. Um, but it's but it's an art form and there's a science to how do we hold high expectations, really challenge our students, but do it in a way that they can can have that experience with success. And like I said, like chunking is one of those really simple ways, um, like mo- using multi-sensory instruction where we get out those manipulatives and we we encourage those rich visuals that can support the cognitive load um, of these challenging tasks, but still allow students to be successful. You know, this whole topic of, of cognitive load, something I'm really hot on these days because it it's a key component of the inequities that we see in math education because the working memory systems of the brain, where do I have a brain here? I got a brain, here's a brain. If you're tuning in, I'm holding a little brain that's made out of Legos. So the, the brain right here, like in the front part of the brain, right behind your forehead, that is where like the working memory systems of the brain reside. And it can only process like one to four things at a time. One to four things, and, and, and like, and that's it. And it can only hang on to it for about thirty seconds before it moves to different parts of the brain. Um, but what what we learned as we're studying the uniqueness of different learners and neurodivergent learners is that working memory capacity can be compromised or limited based on certain factors that a student might be experiencing. Now, this isn't deficit thinking about students. This is just recognizing how the inequities of the system are harming certain students. Mm -hmm. So a student who is experiencing, um, let's say a student who comes from poverty, a student who lives in poverty, you know, the stressors, the chronic stressors that come from that compromise the working memory systems of the brain. Why? Because the brain's designed for survival and not for school-based learning. It never has been. It never will be. And so the brain is going to divert its energy and focus to, you know, will there be another eviction notice on the door when we come home tonight? Um, As opposed to, ooh, how do I factor this trinomial that's got a a leading coefficient that's greater than one? You know, like, what's the brain going to choose if it's really if its main objective is to keep us alive, well, that's a real clear answer. And so what happens is that, you know, so it's like factors like poverty, different stressors, uh, multi-language learners, students who um, have have been marginalized for a variety of reasons, as well as students with math anxiety, students with learning disabilities, all of these factors that can impact a student make it more challenging for them to process and manipulate. And so when we when we keep the manipulatives away, because we think you and me as secondary math teachers, like, oh, like we got to grow up and do this without the algebra tiles, yep. without little counters. What we're doing is we're further harming students who have had life experiences they've had no choice in because they're experiencing 
you know, microaggressions on a daily basis because they are experiencing malnutrition for reasons not their own, they are going to have a more difficult time to do that. And when we're like, oh, we just like, we try to like rush through our lesson and get through all this content instead yep. of like slowing down, putting things into smaller chunks to give them those successes. Like there is absolutely many, many ways to hold high expectations and still serve all of our students, especially those who have been pushed to the margins, who tend to have um, the challenges with, with working memory. Yeah. Whew. Sorry, Where's I got a little nerdy there for a second. Where's the collection plate right here? <laughs> oh, you are preaching right now. So I like how this conversation is going because there are just so many things I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, But I think this is a good time to bring up a few of our favorite terms that we so often hear in math. Oh and these are terms that have been deemed controversial mm -hmm. in some math circles. And, they're, and these are concepts that we have grossly misinterpreted or misconstrued in our own thinking as it pertains to math pedagogy. So I want to just throw a term at a time, and then we're going to just hear your thoughts on uh, what that is for you. So my unfiltered rants, get ready. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the first term. Let's talk about productive struggle. Now, here's how productive struggle has been presented to me in the past. And this is also what I've witnessed. And I'm going to use this analogy, and you'll know exactly what I mean when I say it. Productive struggle is when you take your child to learn how to swim. You throw the child in the deep end of the pool. The child's clearly struggling to stay afloat. And they're like, mommy, I can't swim. Get me out. And you're just on the sideline. You're just saying, oh, you know what, baby? Go ahead. Just, just keep flapping your, your legs. Keep flapping your arms. Just keep paddling. Let me see you paddle. You got to paddle at least a few times before I let you come out. Mm -hmm. But I got to see you paddle, right? And you just let them struggle a little bit, let them struggle a little bit. And then it gets to a point where they are so emotionally distraught that you have to now intervene and rescue them from the pool. Mm -hmm. That's how I've seen productive struggle presented yeah. over the years. I'm just wondering if you've had a similar experience mm -hmm. or presentation <laughs> to this concept. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's a that's a great analogy. I'm gonna see if I can work with that here for a little bit as I as I share my thoughts on productive struggle. Yes, please. So, in, in the math sphere, too often we think that we just need to find this one magical math task that is just so appealing, right? So the pool is just like, oh, it looks so refreshing. It's gonna be so great. And we just like shove students at it, and we think that they're just going to magically know how to deeply engage in rich mathematical thinking that we know, that they know how to struggle with it, that they know how to identify when their struggle has reached its limits, that they have that self-awareness and the skills to be able to, to get back to a place of being productive. So the productive part of productive struggle is too often ignored, first of all. We're just like, oh, let's just struggle, <laughs> shove you in the pool. So my issues with the term productive struggle are that one, it ignores the systemic inequities in education that 
make productive struggle, like this ideal of productive struggle, unwise for someone. If a student does not feel safe in a, in a, in a learning space, in a math space, why should they even give effort? Why will they? Why would they? Right. If a student doesn't have a healthy math identity, like maybe like void of any math trauma or math anxiety, they should have a healthy math identity. Why do we think that they're actually going to give effort? They're not. If they don't feel like they belong, if they don't feel like their teacher is an ally, right? That the person standing on the side of the pool, if I don't believe that if I really start struggling and if I start dipping down below that water, if I don't believe that that grown person is going to reach their hand out and lend me a hand when I need it, why should I even jump into that pool? Because it's not safe to do that. It's not safe. If I don't think this math is relevant, if it's worth my time and effort, why would I even do this? You know, like all that's going to happen is you're going to just reinforce and so what happens is that we students don't. We give them like this rich math task and some students don't choose to really deeply engage in it because that's the wise, safe choice for them to do that. Because if they actually do engage, then all it's going to do is perpetuate an unhealthy math ident identity, reinforce their math trauma, reinforce that this person in front of me is an oppressive figure who doesn't support me and people like me and all it's going to do for the teacher is reinforce the bias that they might have. That, oh, well, see, I knew it. I knew these students weren't good at math or, or you know, were behavior problems or were unmotivated or, you know, whatever the, their bias, the story that, the narrative that sometimes we, we repeat in our own head. So there's, there's that part. So if we want students to really engage deeply in mathematical thinking, we need to create a safe pool for everyone to be able to, to jump in and to know that they will be supported, that they belong there, and that um, it's a safe place for them to, you know, mess around, splash around, and, and see what they can do. But students are only going to spin their cognitive wheels so far and for so long before that effort is just going to turn into apathy. And that's a smart move for some people. Because if I'm just spinning my wheels and I'm not moving anywhere, I'm not going to need traction. I'm just, I'm like doggy paddling, right, in the pool. But well, that's not a really great work. doesn't work. I'm still keeping my head above water. But, you know, we got to have movement. Productive struggle, when you look at the definitions of the research, it requires movement towards yeah. a solution. And we forget that part. And we think like, yeah, look at them. They're struggling. And I'm like, no, they're drowning. They're drowning. So there's Ooh. so, let's just take a deep breath here. Cause oh, I got ooh. things I want to say about this. Ooh. So that's, ooh. <laughs> now that might be a situation where going back to kind of demand, maybe the kind of demand is way too high for the learner. And we may need to, bring it down to a level that's more reasonable. Mm -hmm. Not not in all situations, but in some situations where productive struggle can be counterproductive. Yeah. And, and the other part that people that's that I didn't know when I first started teaching, this has been part of my learning journey as well, is that the brain is not designed for what we dream of for productive struggle. Not even a little bit. 
Like I said, the brain is designed for survival, not for formal active academic learning. So the brain just wants to do whatever it takes to survive. This is why we hear students who just cry out, hey, what do I just tell me what I need to do to pass? Like what like what can I do to just like pass? I just need to get a like this many more points, right? That's just completely counter to like, oh, let me like notice and wonder and really explore and get messy with this problem. That's not the natural design of the brain. The brain's designed to do things the easy way. Yeah. It is. Why? It always wants. This is why we like, it's easier to sit on the couch than get up and exercise. It's easier to drive through McDonald's than it is to go home and make some vegetables. It is, and that's why we choose those things so often. And that's because, again, we're designed for survival. The brain wants to conserve energy so that when something more relevant presents itself to me, I have that reserve of energy to be able to use to something more relevant. And because we have failed miserably in the math ed space to make math relevant, we have students who see this as a class where, hey, this is my conservation time. I'm going to conserve energy. How do I do that? I reach for my calculator. I find an algorithm and I follow that. I find some like mnemonic, some trick, and I'm just going to plug things in, crank, 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 because I'm conserving this energy for something more important, which as an adolescent is going to be like my peer relationships for, you know, it could be a social issue um, or just like a lot of other big things going on in the world right now that are a lot more important than, you know, multiplying matrices or whatever it might be. So the the brain's designed for survival. It's designed for ease. It feeds off of rewards. And so if we want students to like really dive into math deeply, we need to reward that. But what do our math spaces actually reward? Well, I know the one that I grew up in. We've been talking about it, you know, a lot. The speed, the speed, the rightness, you know, the the accuracy. um, And our system is designed to reward through grades. And when we reward through grades, it completely detracts from learning deep learning, productive struggle-based learning. You don't have students who come to you saying like, hey, what do I need to do to understand this deeply? We have students that come to us and say, hey, what do I need to to do to get the A? What do I need to do to get the B minus? Whatever we reward is what students are after. They don't care about the learning because we are releasing dope, our system, let me say this carefully, our system. Woo, boy, I'm getting fired up. Do you hear it? Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> our system has been designed. So many schools, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, this is not all. I'm not. I'm kind of making sweeping statements. I got to be careful here. I do that when I get fired up. All right. my, my students, my students, my kids, my kids go to a school where there are no grades, and I love it. Um, so many schools reward students through grades. And so that's where the dopamine comes. I get my math test back. It's got an A on it, a 93 on it, whatever it is, these numbers, these letters. And that's when I get the release of dopamine. Now, dopamine is a highly addictive neurotransmitter. It's what um, is most associated with drug abuse. And so what happens is that the brain wants more of that. So it comes back for the next hit. And if the hit came from the A, then what am I looking for to get my next hit? I need another A. It's not the effort. It's not the progress that you were talking about, Kwame. You were talking about like, you know, validating and acknowledging that progress. When we reward students for mistakes, for progress, for effort, yes. then we get more of it. 
when we reward them with grades and stickers and candy bars, then they want more of that. So there's so many different elements. And this is, I'm, I'm releasing a, a webinar, or like a three-part video series about this whole topic of productive struggle and all these different layers about how the brain's not designed for productive struggle, how our system, um, like the context in which students learn in, in terms of like the pool, right? Like right. not having an ally, not feeling safe in this space, how that, but then the final element is that if we're really going to expect six-year-olds, 16-year-olds, any student who is not even an adult yet to be able to struggle productively, then we sure as heck better teach them the social emotional learning skills of how to do that. Yes, we got to. We, we, we definitely got to do that. But productive struggle is just one of those things that we just have to unpack. And I know we don't have time to really talk about it, but so much of productive struggle ties back into this idea of metacognition. Like if students can't even, if students don't even know how they learn and how they think and process through different things, how can they productively struggle? Exactly. They it's need not, to it's just not possible. Right. Right. They need to, when you look at like the castle framework, that's like the leading organization for social emotional learning here in the States. And it's a global leader in that sphere. One of their five components is self-management. And I think mm. that's what is at the root of um, productive struggle is being able to manage myself in a math space. So I need to be able to one, feel like this math task is relevant enough to me for me to even like jump into the pool. Right. Um, which is a whole different, you know, need. But let's say I do, I'm in the pool, but like I'm struggling. I'm like doggy paddling. I'm I'm treading water here and I can find myself slipping. In in cognitive neuroscience, more like um, cognitive psychology, we'd say that you go from being in like a positive neurological state, I'm feeling curious or hopeful or confident. And then slowly I transition into a negative state where I'm feeling yeah. frustrated, bored, fearful, hopeless. A student needs to be able to recognize, and the teachers do too, but the students yeah. need to be able to learn how to recognize when they're making that shift for themselves. And when they do, they need specific tools of what can I do to manage myself to stay engaged in productive struggle. And it's a skill set and it can be taught. It can be learned. I started a school in Denmark when I was living over there. We started a brand new school We're in our ninth year. And this is the focus of what we do at our school. It's centered around social emotional learning and helping students to develop these skills to, to manage themselves. But that's what happens. What happens, uh, sweeping statement. Hold on, hold on. Okay. Too often, I know. Too often we see a student who is struggling and we too quickly put the blame on them right? and say, oh, they're unmotivated. There's not a math person, yada, yada. And we don't step back and say, hold on a second. Like this pool is polluted. Like this is, this is an inequitable system. The student doesn't feel safe. And why do we expect, I mean, so look around my friend, look around. How many adults do you know who have really high levels of self-management skills right now? You got people like throwing punches on airplanes, you know, like we're all yeah. struggling and we all, these are skills that we are not born with, but the good news is that they're skills that can be taught. 
And that's why I'm a huge proponent for teaching SEL within the math context. It's a beautiful platform and they work so well together. It is so essential. So essential. So we got one more. Mm. And this one may take us another hour to talk about. Yeah. Uh -oh. Let's see if we can <laughs> condense it to a few minutes. Okay. And it's gradual release of responsibility. Now, for many of us in the teaching space, we know this as the direct instruction model, mm -hmm. which many of us, I'm sure everybody has had to learn during their teacher training. You know, I do, we do, you do. Like, who has not learned that? Mm -hmm. Now, I did get a chance to tune in to the, the Bay Math podcast. I listened to it. And I felt like both sides were making some great points. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, one, there's this idea that direct instruction takes away the innovation or takes away the student's opportunity to, to think for themselves and build agency mm -hmm. when it comes to their math learning. But at the same time, you were arguing the fact that we have grossly misinterpreted what this gradual release model is, yeah. which was a new viewpoint for me. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe we have, because I've always felt like, oh, when we say I do, meaning like the teacher starts off, it's like, all right, let's do a quick, maybe a do now. Let's do a quick motivational, get kids going. Mm -hmm. Let's show a few examples. Mm -hmm. Then we'll let the kids do some examples, which we'll help them out with. And then, Boom, independent practice, you're on your own. That's how it's usually taught to us. Exactly. But you're saying, nah, that's not how it's supposed to go. So yeah. I'm going to let you go from there. <laughs> yeah. So I actually, I don't know how. I, I don't know if I was sleeping through that class in undergrad, but I, I never I never learned it in uh, my pre-teaching service. And so okay. maybe, that, maybe that was a, a perk because it wasn't, you know, this false interpretation of it was never ingrained in me. And it wasn't until later that I, I was exposed to it. And I was like, what? Um, uh -huh. But that is the common narrative. The common narrative is like teacher-led instruction, which transitions, you know, to this, you know, uh, guided practice kind of thing. And then the independent practice. And a couple things. One, that's just a false interpretation of the model, although it is the most widely accepted interpretation, it's it's inaccurate. Um, the intention behind the model is gradual release of responsibility, that we do some type of either informal assessment or we just let students jump into some task and we let them get started and see what they can do. And we're just observing. And based on what our observations through uh, through observation or through some type of um, formal assessment that doesn't count for a grade, we we are able to think. Okay, I can see that we that these students or all of these students need some more um, some more scaffolding, and so then we we push in a little bit more and we give a little bit more guidance and then we pull back out. Um, that's how I understand the intention behind the gradual release model is that it is student centered and that we as the teachers do as little as possible, mm. but it does require, you know, some big teacher awareness to be able to see where students are and know 
how little more support do we need them, right? If we're going to go back to the pool example, we don't just throw them in the pool and leave them in the pool. If, if they need help learning a stroke, you know, like freestyle or butterfly stroke or breaststroke, whatever it is, then if we're going to, you know, mix topics here, then the teacher would be like, all right, hold on, everyone. Everyone come on over here to the wall, hang on to the wall. Let me show you a little bit. Like, here's how you, you know, do this right here. All right, go ahead and try it on your own. And we do that. Um, And so for me, it's, if we throw the model out completely and we say, hey, let's just always let students, um, you know, do their own, like this inquiry-based, then I feel like it's really similar to like throwing them in the pool. And if they don't have the background knowledge that they need, how are they going to learn how to swim? I mean, they might figure it out on their own. It's going to take longer, which is a different topic of going back to like, oh, we've got these pacing guides. we got to get to the cover all this content for the standardized test. I'm okay with taking our time. Um, but I believe that direct instruction is faster for better or for worse. Um, that doesn't mean we should always use it. But I do believe that there are times when direct instruction uh, holds value, especially because the cognitive demand of being in a pool without the skills is so high for our marginalized swimmers. And so the ones who have, uh, who need more support might not doggy paddle as long as others, woo, we're sticking with this metaphor, and could use a little bit of extra support. And so, uh, and I, I realized this more when I had my first experience teaching kindergarten and first grade. Mm. As a middle school and high school math teacher, it's just a whole, it's a very different perspective. But when I went down and like the basics and fundamentals of math, I was like, wow, there's just so many things that they're not going to figure out on their own. If I just let them go out on their own, like at some point I'm going to have to come in and say, yeah. And on this clock right here, like each little tick mark is one minute. And you know, the one going to the one actually means five minutes. It's like all this weird, crazy stuff and just no notation and, and a lot of things. So my thesis statement is, let me just wrap this up, is that when we pit two methodologies against each other, direct instruction versus inquiry-based, students lose. They lose big time because we are trying to create a hierarchy within math pedagogy. And there really isn't. It's all about who is the student, what do they know, what do they bring to this math space, and what strategy is going to help serve them best in this moment, in this concept. And we need to be flexible enough to be able to honor the students' needs versus our own opinions of um, what pedagogy is better than other. Because it's mm-hmm. so much dependent on context. Yes, context is definitely key because in order to know what move to make, you have to assess prior knowledge. So whether it be in the form of a diagnostic assessment, and it could be something as short as three, four questions. Sure. Here solve these three, four questions and see what mistakes they make. And, and this actually ties to something that happened maybe yesterday. So I've been tutoring a fourth grader and he's going on to fifth grade next year. So 
we've been doing a lot of work with basics, um, mm -hmm. focusing on word problems. So yesterday I just said, all right, I'm going to give you this word problem. I want to see how you solve it. Cause I just wanted to see what the baseline was, mm -hmm. how he's yeah. going to approach it, how he's understand the question, how he's interpreting the question so that I can get an idea of what move I, I need to make because I came in there pretty much with nothing. Mm -hmm. No records of past performance, anything like that. I said, all right, I need some kind of baseline so mm -hmm. I can figure out how to start and act and just engage with them. And I think when you talk about direct instruction, it's all about figuring that out because the starting point is is different depending on the students that we have depending on the lesson itself depending on whether or not students have the prerequisites to even access the lesson you want to teach right you're not going right. to know that unless you do a little bit of uh deeper digging if you will yeah so I, I say yes, 100% did like, you know, quick few question diagnostics, but also the relational element is so critical because then you get to know the student, you get to know their story, listening to them, knowing them, know yes. the math that they, they bring into the space because that also matters. They might have some basic skills, but if they have some anxiety, some trauma, some, you know, past bad math experiences, that's also going to influence the kind of strategy that you use because that's gonna impact how long they might be willing to struggle, um, what emotions they bring into the problem that they're starting so much, so, so much. Yeah, so true, so true. So Lisa, we're, we're actually at the hour mark. Uh, <laughs> this has been a great conversation. I wish we could keep going forever. But I know. You know, so we, we, have our, we have our lives, we gotta live, we got our families, we gotta take care of, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's get into the lightning round to wrap right. things up. So we want to get to know a little bit more about you outside of math context. Um, I do have a few fun questions in there just so that people can see, you know, how you live. Right. Mm -hmm. So first question is what's your favorite math concept to learn or teach? Favorite to teach proofs in geometry. How's that for a shocker? Okay, so like trig trig proofs, or uh, like triangle congruency proof proofs, just proofs in general. The the Got whole you. thought process of proving things true. Love it. All right, that's cool. Cool. Least favorite math concept to teach or learn? Anything that I haven't found a way to make relevant to my students. Mm. That's gonna very be good answer. Very good answer. When you're walking into your classroom, what song's going to be playing in the background? <laughs> I'm going to get a lot of interesting looks with this one. Um, I don't know if it's going to be playing in my classroom, but whenever, oh, geez, I can't believe I'm going to share this with everybody. Whenever I um, am going into, like, on a big stage, like, talking in front of a lot of people, and I'm, I'm feeling nervous and I'm feeling like my imposter syndrome is kicking in and I really need to just feel good and feel confident. <laughs> What's li what I'm listening to to get myself pumped up before I go and teach? Young MC, bust a move. Oh, <laughs> nice. You got it. Uh, uh. You got it. Mm. <laughs> 
Hey, boast to move. Just boast to move. Hey. Yep. Uh, that's, yeah. that's, it, it, it gets the job done for me. I mean, the rest of the lyrics are, you know, something else, but something about it. It's my song. All right, cool. Well, Lisa, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. No little yeah. math talk. Um, but before you go, mm-hmm. please let people know how they can connect with you on social media. If you have a website you'd like to share um, so that people can learn more about your work, feel free to share at this time. Yeah, you can find me on all social media channels at Liesl McConchie. Um, I'm most active on Twitter and uh, my website is full of a lot of free resources. Dig around. There's a lot of like books on there that are free, a lot of articles and resources for motivating your students and different things I offer. And that's just LieselMcConchie.com. It's L-I-E-S-L. McConchie is M-C-C-O-N-C-H-I-E. That's where you can find me. And I love connecting with people and, and chatting it up. So thanks so much for having me on, Kwame. Uh, well, thank you for coming on, Lisa. And listen, y'all need to go ahead and check out her website. She has a lot of great resources, like she said, and she's doing a lot of great work. Um, hopefully we can do a part two of this conversation because I feel like there's still so much more we can unpack. So much more. There is, there is. And so many people are like, oh, neuroscience is all like brainy and nerdy and like it seems so distant. But it really, I truly believe that understanding the brain helps us to create a student-centered, equitable space for all students to, to learn math. So I, th- I love it. And I think it's really relevant for it's key. the, it's the key goals for that we sure. have. Yeah. Yes. All right. So I'm gonna let you go now and I'm wishing you a good rest of the day. I know you still have a few more hours left. Yes. On your end. Mm-hmm. All right. You have a wonderful right. day as well, Kwame. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, thank you. All right, y'all. So we're about to end another episode of Radical Math Talk. And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at identitytalk.com. For numeral four educators.com. I'll say it one more time. Identity talk for educators.com. Thank you and have a great day.